Well, you had a great week, didn't you? Great week of eating and celebrating, of being around family and friends, having great feasts. What better way to celebrate that together as a church than to come together and talk about the Sixth Commandment? <laughs> talk about after a week of an upper, what a downer. Um, and I'm not gonna just, we're not going to just talk about it for one week. We're going to talk about it for two weeks, for two weeks. The Sixth Commandment, here is what it says. If you have your Bibles open, here's the Sixth Commandment, the Word of God to you this morning. Make sure you listen, because it's going to go by fast. You shall not murder. It's so short, let's say it twice. You shall not murder. This sends the reading of God's words this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 9, though, as we're going to be there in just a minute as well. Thou shalt not murder is probably how you learned this as a kid, with the vows. Thou shalt not murder. But here's a question. Why not? Why not? On Wednesday, February 14, a young man armed with a rifle entered Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And with that rifle, he managed to end the lives of 17 students and employees of the school. And our nation was outraged by this. We were saddened and sickened, and the incident sparked again all kinds of debates about guns and what the government should do to prevent this event from happening again. But here's the question, why the outrage? I mean, really, people debate whether guns are bad, but there is a more fundamental question. Why were the killings themselves bad? Everyone seems to agree on that. But why? You see, there, scientifically, there is absolutely no basis for saying human beings have rights and dignity and value. This has come to the forefront in the 20th century. Listen to two of the 20th century's greatest thinkers. Bertrand Russell said this, I think this will be on the screen for you. We are the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. In other words, he's coming out of an evolutionary thought process. The hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs of our minds are just the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. In other words, we are a cosmic accident. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the famous chief justice and major intellectual of the 20th century, said this, Scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to man, a man, a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or to a grain of sand. Do you see the conundrum before us? In this secular society, and secular therapists would like to say this to you. Oh, you are of great value and worth. You are so wonderful. You have dignity. You are a valuable human being. Yet, the philosophy of secularism has no basis for that at all. G.K. Chesterton sardonically calls out the quandary of the modern secular thinking on this when he puts it, like, puts it like this. As a politician, the secular person will cry out that all war is a waste of life. But then as a philosopher, admit that all of life is a waste of time. The secular person goes first to a political meeting where he complains the natives are being treated as if they were beasts. Then he goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that all human beings actually are 
beasts. This is the challenge. The, the challenge of the modern academic dilemma is that on one hand, we want to celebrate and preserve life, but on the other hand, we're trying to get our science and our philosophy to prove that there is actually nothing special about human life. And this thinking has done a number on humanity for the last 100 years. In the 20th century, 25 million people have been murdered by their governments alone. The state is the largest murderer in the last century. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Castro, Pol Pot, the list can go on and on. In World War II, there were over 120 million people killed in World War II alone. The number of people killed by governments in the last 100 years exceeds the amount of people it is estimated killed in the rest of human history. There are a few people who you might have known. You used to know about murderers, didn't we? It speaks to how little we take in view life now. We used to know about the sociopaths out there, the John Wayne Gacy's and the Marilyn Manson's who might kill four or five or six people in gruesome ways. These murders were so hideous that they took our nation by shock and by storm for a very long time. People wrote books about them and studied them for years upon years, but now no one even knows the names of our mass murderers. It happens so frequently but the Bible says, while our culture and while the world around us, we have more and more, with our increasing ability with technology, treated life as something to be thrown in the trash heap, the Bible says there is something inherently special. In fact, there is something sacred, we might say, about human life. The commandment, thou shalt not murder, is actually first articulated around the principle on which the commandment thou shalt not murder is based. It says this, this is God to Noah, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And here's the principle, for God made man in his own image. We see here in Genesis 9 a theological principle that undergirds the commandment, thou shalt not murder. God is telling us how he views and sees human life, that there is sanctity. That means there is something sacred about human life. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. First, the principle of the sanctity of human life. And then we'll look at some implications of that this morning, some ethics. So first, the principle of the sanctity of human life. The principle is this, right? You hear it there in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. We are made in the image of God. This speaks to who we are as human beings, that we have the stamp of the divine placed upon us, that we are mirrors of the divine. Think about it in terms of this, that God created the world in the space of six days. On the first five days, at the end of each day, he, he, would, he would fling the stars and the sun and the moon into the sky. He would create all the birds and the beasts. He would create the rivers and the oceans and all these great things. And every day he would say they're good. But at the end of the sixth day, he looked at man and he said, you are very good. You ever driven to the redwoods in California? There, they are a sight to behold. There is something that leaves you awe-inspired, your mouth agape, probably because your head is looking up for forever as you look at the enormity of these trees in which literally you can drive cars through the middle of some of them. They are of such great enormity. But think in terms of this, that God says and looks at you that you are more awe-inspiring than those trees. 
was in the mountains this week in the western part of North Carolina, and my kids aren't very used to seeing mountains, and there was kind of a few moments where one of my children kind of looked up from whatever he was reading and suddenly goes, whoa, whoa, what are those mountains? They are enormous. They are of colossal in measure, but God, God says, you were made in his image. It is if God says when he made you, he said, whoa. Every human being is made in the image of God. We reflect God. And since we are made in the image of God, that means what about us? It means you, it speaks to your immeasurable worth. In other words, you are priceless. In fact, this is actually seen in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. It's an interesting place to find the pricelessness of human life because it's there we actually see the kind of the lex talionis, the eye for an eye kind of idea. We see actually the basis for capital punishment given to us in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. I require of man and beast. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And what is it saying? Why is it, why is it that the only thing, the, the, the only thing that can pay, that holds the value of human life is capital punishment? And when you take the life of somebody else, the only thing that actually meets that, that heinous act, is the taking of a life. What's well, saying that only one thing can match the value of a life. In other words, if you were to say this, if you were to say someone comes up and shoots somebody in the head and they kill them, they murder them in cold blood, and they, they drag you to the court and they say, you, well, you have to pay $150,000 to their family, what are we saying is the worth and the value of a life? $150,000. There is only one thing that meets that meets the place of the value of a life. Life is actually priceless. And understand this. Genesis is grounding this truth, and Exodus is saying it as well. This is true not just for some lives, but the Word of God says that every life is as, pre- as, as precious and priceless as an image bearer of God. Understand the context of Exodus chapter 20 and the people of Israel. God is giving these commandments to a people who have just come out of where? Egypt, where they have been enslaved. And in Egypt, only one person was considered to bear the image of God. In fact, this is the case for many societies and in, 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 in nations of that day. It was the king. It was Pharaoh. If you wanted to honor the gods, then you honored the king because the king bore the image of gods. Powerful earthly kings, what they would do back in the day and age before TV and technology, what they would do when they would rule over and have dominion over lands that they were never going to visit the place and way in which they would say, in which they rule over that land, is they would pay very much money to have their image, their image placed all over the place in those countries, in those places. So before Genesis 1, here's the, here's the idea. A canal digger, when hearing the term image of God, would have thought of the king and only the king as bearing that image. But here in Genesis chapter 1, and Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 9, when it calls the people, it speaks with deliberate provocation in the face of the Egyptian world in which the Israelites have lived. It speaks of the image of God, not of just a king, but of all men and women. Male and female, he created them in his image. In other words, what Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 9 is saying is this, is that you are royalty. And it's saying it to a bunch of people who have been treated like dirt their whole lives, who have said your life is meaningless and worthless and purposeless and you as they have been enslaved. But Christianity, because of the doctrine of the image of God, says this, 
says to people, grounds in reality that God doesn't make junk. And this is true for men and women. It's true for every life, for the disabled, for the young, for the old, for the white, for the black, and for every person in between. It is true for the Easterner and the Westerner. Everyone is precious in God's sight. Therefore, there is a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory and significance and value and worth about you and every other human being. In fact, this is the heartbed of Western democracy, isn't this truth? You know, most nations didn't actually give everybody a vote. And you know why? Because not everybody was equal. And yet, what is the beginning? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. If there is no God, if there is no God, then the majority rules over the minority, and nobody can say it is wrong. The strong can crush the weak and do whatever they want, and no one can say it is wrong of them. If there is a theistic worldview of a God who objectively declares value is the foundation of the sanctity of human life. If you forget God, you forget the value of human life. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says it well in asking the question, what happened in his novels? What happened that Stalin and Lenin could massacre 40 million Ukrainians? What happened that led the Turkish to have a genocide of their Armenians? And here was the statement by old ladies in his novel was this. Because we forgot God. The modern therapist who will tell you that you need to love yourself, actually what you need to do is you need to love God first and foremost. And you need to get in touch with the glory and the profoundness of who he is but because it is this God who is the one who has declared you your worth. Your worth is bound up in God's glory and God's worthiness. To forget God is to forget that you're an image bearer of that God. And it's to undercut the very life and value of those around you. All right, so that's the principle of the sixth commandment. This principle of so the sanctity of human life. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time answering some questions about the implications of the sanctity of human life. And this will get difficult, and this will be challenging, and we're not going to have completed all this morning. We're going to ask essentially these questions. What, what isn't prohibited by the Sixth Commandment? What is prohibited? And then actually, the positive that we'll look at next week, what is required? What is required? Well, what are the implications of the sanctity of human life? Well, the Sixth Commandment gives it to us in the most gen general and generic of ways, right? The implication, of course, is seen in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. If life is valuable, the taking of life is the thing that you're not to do. It's a way of, of living into the value of human life. Now, does this mean that there is never a time or place or a circumstance in which the taking of life is not a violation of the Sixth Commandments? In other words, are there legal and lawful acts of life-taking? The word used in the Sixth Commandment, this is where exegesis and understanding your Greek or your Hebrew actually matters, because many of you grew up actually reading the KJV. You probably heard it in Ed this morning. How did Ed begin the, the, the worship? So he said, we're going to look at the commandment, thou shalt not kill. This is what the King James Version actually continues to have in its Bible today. It says, thou shalt not kill. Well, this is the problem when you actually don't root your biblical translations in the original languages. 
But the actual language and the word that's used here is not the Hebrew word for kill. The Hebrew word for kill is harag or katal, but instead the Hebrew word that is used here in the sixth commandment is the word ratzak, meaning murder. Now the difference is very important because the word for kill refers to any taking of life, legal or illegal, immoral or moral. That is why you never hear anybody saying something like this. You never hear somebody saying, I murdered a mosquito because it is not immortal, immoral to murder a mosquito. You say, I killed the mosquito. The person who is killed accidentally on a job site, on a construction site, you don't say he was murdered on the construction site. You say, no, he was killed on the construction site. The word murder actually refers specifically and narrowly to illegal, immoral killing. So yes, there are legal, lawful, and permissible killings that are not prohibited by the Sixth Commandment. Let me just give you an example of three. First is this, is self-defense. You are allowed to defend yourself in measure. And it's interesting, the, the, the Old Testament has such great wisdom for, our, for case law for us. Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 through 3, this should be up on the screen for you. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, the person who strikes him when he's breaking in, and if you kill him, that you're not held responsible for his death. But if the sun has arisen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, it is Exodus chapter 20, 22 is grounding the right that you have to defend yourself, but is also saying there is measure in this and that life still matters, even the person who's seeking to rob from you. They're saying if the sun has risen, you must restrain yourself from lethal force. If you can do so without having, you can, you can defend yourself without having to kill this person. And yet at the same time, it does say that self-defense is okay. You are not held responsible as murdering somebody and trying to defend yourself. Therefore, it is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Capital punishment would be another one we could look at. We already said this a little bit in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Capital punishment does not devalue life and actuality when it is instituted in Genesis chapter 9. It upholds the value of life. It shows that life is valuable. Capital punishment for murder is not an assault on the image of God. Instead, it is a defense of the image of God saying that this is such a heinous, awful act to take the life of another in this way that you must take the life of the person. It's the only thing that matches up. And in fact, the New Testament uh, pushes this as well. In Romans chapter 13, verse 4, it says this, Governing authorities are God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For the, he that's personalizing the government, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul is arguing that authorities are in the place of God and they have been given the right and the authority to carry out judgments in a temporal way. Now this is not to say that you have to have capital punishments. This is not to say that there are not ways in which you can do this in, way, in, in ways that are more just. And in, in fact, there may be some times and places where it may be appropriate to say, we're simply not going to have this because we can't appear to do it justly and rightly. But, it is not, but we don't see in the scriptures a, a sense that the capital punishment is actually a violation of the six commandments. Third, just war. Just war. Lawful killing is allowed in a just war. We need to be careful that we are not eager for war. We should not desire to go to war. We ought to pray and love those passages that talk about uh, 
taking your swords and your, 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 uh, your, your spears and, and, and knocking them into plowshares, into elements of peace and harvesting. Peace should always be the goal, but war is sometimes necessary in a broken world to defend the peace and to win the peace. Yahweh, in fact, led and called people in the battle quite often. Now, understand this. There is a legitimate intellectual and biblical case for pacifism based on the words of Jesus but this appears to be a pacifism that is applied for the, either the individual or, for, or, or ecclesiologically for the church, but not necessarily for the nation state. In fact, the nation state has the moral responsibility to protect its citizens from those who might take their lives. So there is a case, there could be a case, in which I'm not ready to get into this morning, but there is a case possibly for individual pacifism or for Christians, and the implications for this is whether you join the military or not are, are wide and varied, and I'm not going to get into that, but, but in a just war, there is a right place for nations, for governments to protect and defend their people. So the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit that sort of killing, self-defense, capital punishment, just wars. So what does the Sixth Commandment prohibit? Well, there's some obvious cases, aren't there? Some obvious one. Premeditated murder is out. You're not allowed to think about, uh, come up with plans, and then execute uh, opportunities to murder other people. That's out. We're good there, right? Well, that's clear. Ma- voluntary manslaughter we see in the Old Testament law as well. This is the killing of someone in a rage. In which, If you walk in your wife, if she's having an affair with somebody else, and you take the man out and you beat him to death or shoot him, that is voluntary manslaughter. This is killing somebody in the midst of a fight in a heated rage. It is non-premeditated. We see incidents of that in case law in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. We also see involuntary manslaughter. Like somebody who's driving drunk and kill someone. They don't set out to purposely kill somebody, but through their recklessness and their carelessness for the sanctity of life around them, they actually do take the life of somebody. We see the Old Testament actually talks about negligent homicide. In fact, there's actually laws in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, 8, it says this, when you build a new house, you shall build a fence for your roof so that no one falls and dies. This is like, you know, like the kind of laws we had to consistently follow while we were building this building. For those of you that are stark libertarians, I would say you might need to read your Old Testaments. That it is appropriate and right for the government to step in and say in which there are places in which we're going to say you cannot do this or you cannot do that for the, for the good of others around you, for the preserving of life. Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 and 29 actually talks about if an ox gores someone to death, you own an ox, they kill somebody. And if the owner knew that this ox had this propensity, this ox had gored other people, then that owner, not just the ox would be put to death, but the owner would be put to death because he was negligent. It was a negligent homicide. These are all some ways that are implications of the Sixth Commandment. But as a more applied ethics to our cultural moment, I want to address three ethical matters that speak into critical conversations and issues of today. Three critical matters. And I want to try to deal with them with a tender touch, but yet I, I am, my, my goal this morning is to show you that each of these things are indeed murder. We will have a more maybe compassionate and gentle tone next week, but this week my goal and my desire is to communicate that these things are wrong. Three things I want to look at this morning. First is this, suicide. Suicide is murder. It is a violation of the Sixth Commandment because we are image bearers created by God. 
This means we don't just get to do, we can't get to do whatever we want to others, but this also means you don't get to do whatever you want to yourself. People might say, but I own my life, don't I? And I would say, no, you don't own your life. God created you. God formed you. God owns you. Your life is not your own. You can't do with it as you wish. In fact, actually, the image that we're given all throughout the scriptures is not that you're the owner of your life, you are the steward of your life. Now, a quick side note on this, because some of you come from a, a Roman Catholic background in which it was communicated to you that you could lose your grace through a mortal sin, and one of the mortal sins is suicide. Many Catholics have believed, been raised to believe this, that if I commit suicide, I go straight to hell. You don't pass go, you don't get $200, it is a mortal sin. And because I've done a sin, because I've done this, I didn't get a chance to do confession in the midst of your suicides. You have to understand biblically that is not the way it goes. Romans 8, chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1 says this. When a person becomes a Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question for those who have taken their own life is this. Were they a believer or not believer? If you're a believer, then all of your sins are taken, including that final act. You are saved. But having said that, suicide is murder and it is wrong. It is the taking of life in an unlawful way. Some of you may, may recoil at the starkness of that. But actually saying so is a compassionate act. It is kindness to say that. If I could put a barrier in front of somebody this morning who is considering taking their own life, and I would say, this is displeasing to your God. It is wrong to do. You don't have the right to do this. And if that is the wall that keeps you from taking your own life, then that is an act of kindness on, on my behalf. Listen, if you are somebody this morning who has wrestled with thoughts of suicide and it is in, in taking your own life, if that is a place where you have been, please come speak to us. I, go, I would point you back to the place of the principle we saw, looked at earlier. I would want to say to you who's thinking about taking your own life that you are worth, you're priceless in God's sight. You have purpose and you have value in this world. Come speak to us. We can get you help. Second area of applied ethics I want to talk to this morning is the issue of euthanasia. In early 2017, both the District of Columbia as well as the state of California passed assisted suicide laws, removing the restrictions against the practice. But here's the question. If you were to go into a public school, probably if you were to go into Harrelton High School today, you would see signs up, and you'd see it around West Georgia as well, signs up about, about uh, suicide prevention hotlines. And if you are thinking about taking your own life, call this. In other words, there is, a, there is some, there's a, an ethic and an ethos and a moray out there that says that take your own life is wrong. Well, the question is this. Why is it wrong for one group of people to do it? If they're in high school or in college, why is it wrong for them to do it? And it's not wrong for a 78-year-old with cancer to do it. We're setting a terrible precedence. How can you give an option for assisted suicide to one group of people and then put forward to another group of people that that option is not for their consideration? And in actuality, those who are consistent ethically on these things are actually pushing for the widening of this to say that, yes, anybody should be able to take their own life at any place, and they should, they should be allowed to do so in a way that is most comfortable for them and those around them. Now, understand this. This is a serious matter of systemic injustice. In fact, there is a country in Western Europe that has became the first nation about 15 years ago as a whole to, um, to, to uh, make legal assisted suicide. 
And what has happened in that country over the time in which uh, a suicide suicide has been legal is that the voluntary aspect of euthanasia has become more and more gray. Because what has happened? Well, let me give you the scenario. Somebody comes to their, into, into treatment for cancer, and they say, you have about one year to live if we do treatment on you, but if we don't have treatment on you, you'll get about four or five months to live. And so you know what the insurance company will say? I'm sorry, we're not going to shell out millions and millions of dollars for you to have another six months to live. We would rather you just take these pills. And in fact, what they're finding in this particular country is more and more the requests for assisted suicide have come not from the patients themselves, but from their family members. Now here we enter in a world that is very, very dangerous, don't we? By the way, that European country is the Netherlands. During the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands and Holland, the, the Nazis insisted that the Dutch doctors would not treat the infirmed, the handicapped, the mentally impaired, and the Dutch doctors resisted to their own death. They were lined up at a wall and shot because they refused to take the life of others in their country. But in 2001, Holland became the first country in the world to give legal status to assisted suicides. Malcolm Modridge, the noted um, journalist in England, said this about Holland. After this happened, he said this, it took only one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. This is the shift that we have made. Now, there are those who considered euthanasia to actually be the compassionate thing to do, but we must not allow cloudy definitions of what is or is not compassionate to wander outside the barriers in which God has given us. In other words, yes, you should be compassionate. You should try to make people comfortable, but there are fences. That's what God's law has given us that those fences would say, yes, make people be comfortable, yes, show compassion to people, but the limits to which you can go is the taking of life. There are only certain places you can go, so euthanasia is murder, and it is wrong, and it is a travesty. And last, but certainly not least, I want to address abortion this morning. The issue of abortion comes down to this, this question is the baby inside a mother's womb a human being? Now listen, there are all kinds of, 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 of peripheral debates and arguments that go on. Question about wantedness, and question about disability, and questions about um, abortion in the case of, of rape or incest. But they are all downwind from this question. If you answer this question then you've actually set a precedent and a principle that helps answer all the rest of those questions. If you want to read more about abortion and the answers, the Christian answers to it, I, I'd encourage you to go to a website, abort73.com. It is the most coherent and the, the best place to go, I think, for answers for lay people on, reissue, on these issues. But the question, is the baby in a mother's womb a human being? Let me give you answers from three sources. First, the Bible. I would, I would say to you that the Bible gives strong inclination that a baby in a mother's womb is indeed a human being. Psalm chapter 30, 139, verses 13 through 16 is the quintessential text for discussing the sanctity of human life, where David there talks about how God formed him in his, own, in his mother's womb, that he shaped him, and he knew the numbers of his days and the darkest parts of the reaches uh, of his life, that he was there. Now, this doesn't give a clear statement that life begins at conception, but it certainly shows that what is in a mother's womb is a human being and being, being shaped as a human life and has infinite value and worth. In fact, that is the context of Psalm 139, that David is saying, I have worth in God's sights, just like any other 
a human being outside of the womb does. And actually, there's an example in the case law of Exodus chapter 21. In verses 22 through 25, it says this. When men strive together, that is fight, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall oppose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is the treatment of a child in the uterus with the same rights and dignity as we see found in Genesis chapter 9, afforded to all other human beings. So that's what the Bible has to say. The leaning of the scriptures is the value and worth of a human being. Science also has an answer to this as well. This question, is the baby inside a mother's womb a human being? Science affirms that a child in utero is a human. In fact, the scientific facts are really not even disputed in the academic settings any longer. At conception, a new DNA strand is created that is distinct from mom's DNA and dad's DNA. It is a distinct and new human life. And we see this replicated, played out in the, in the development of a child in, the, in utero. At eight weeks in the womb, a baby feels and reacts to, to pain, to a pinprick, and has all the organs necessary to support life. A baby at eight weeks has a heartbeat and has dreams, is dreaming in the womb. In fact, modern texts on human embryology affirm that human life begins at conception. Here's some quotes for you from a few of these places. One, an academic or a, a medical journal. A medical book. First, human development begins at fertilization approximately 14 days after the onset of the last menstrual period when a sperm fuses with a female egg to form a single cell, the zygote. This highly specialized, totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as unique individuals. This is from Clinically Oriented Embryology. Here, listen to this. Two quotes from National Geographic in case you're somebody who doesn't really trust medical books, but you, just, you, you trust what comes on your TV. Biologically speaking, human development begins at fertilization. That's from a, a magazine from the, from the National Geographic, The Biology of Prenatal Development in 2006. The National Geographic, in a video called In the Womb, says this, the two cells gradually and gracefully become one. This is the moment of conception when an individual's unique set of DNA is created, a human signature that never existed before and will never be repeated. Science affirms that life in the womb is indeed human life. And lastly, I'd also even say this, to the question, is, the human, is life in the womb human life? Even abortion advocates affirm that a child in the womb is a human being. Let me just give you a number of quotes on this. Peter Singer, who's a contemporary philosopher and public abortion advocate, joins the chorus of actually saying that what is in the womb is a human life. In his book, Practical Ethics, he writes this, it is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as equivalent to a member of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. 
Bernard Nathanson, who co-founded one of the most influential abortion advocacy groups in the world known as NARAL, and once served as a medical director for the largest abortion clinic in America, he wrote this in the New England Journal of Medicine. There is no longer serious doubt in my mind that human life exists within the womb from the very onset of pregnancy. And he reared that again some years later. There is simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being. And lastly, Faye Walton, the longest raising president, reigning president of the largest abortion business in the United States, known as Planned Parenthood, argued as far back as 1997 that everyone already knows that abortion kills. She proclaims in, the, in an interview in Miss Magazine, she said this, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we can say, we cannot say yes, it kills a fetus. When it comes to abortion, the difficult sentence that must be stated and it must be proclaimed by God's people is this, abortion is murder. It is a violation of the sixth commandment. It is murder philosophically, scientifically, biologically, and theologically it is murder. It is murder when you look at the science behind it and when you see how humanity has viewed it for the past thousands of years. And yet the reality is this, from 1973 until now, we have had over 55 million babies aborted in the United States alone. The majority of these abortions were performed for convenience sake, not because of a medical emergency. Less than 1% are because of rape or incest. There is, this is more lives lost than the Holocaust of World War II, more than the communist regime of Stalin in the former Soviet Union. This is a terrifyingly enormous number, and it's not even the worldwide number, not even close. We're only talking about the United States of America here. Brothers and sisters, we should grieve, and we should repent, and we should pray. So, we must say... Suicide and euthanasia and abortion is murder because that is true. Because we must say that abortion is murder because we feel the weight of this issue. But we must say it with compassion. We must say it with care. Because what this means is this. Is there are murderers in our midst. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you've funded an abortion. Maybe you've encouraged a friend to have an abortion. In these things, you participated in the murder of a human being. But here's another truth, and one with tremendous promise. Just as clearly as the Bible speaks about the value of life, it also speaks about the value and the wonder and the abundance of grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The sin, this sin, the sin of murder, no matter in what form or shape it comes, and we'll look at many more next week, the sin of murder does not disqualify you from the kingdom of God. His grace his mercy, his forgiveness are bigger than your sin. Lean into him. God has always pulled from the fringe of, dep of depravity and darkness. And he has used those he has pulled from darkness into light to shine his light most beautifully and most profoundly in the world. And with this, one scholar who studied under Peter Singer, that abortion advocate that I quoted earlier, this this one scholar, a guy named Chris Gabbard, he taught that some humans should be encouraged to die and that the severely disabled should be killed and they shouldn't be given a choice about it. Then something happened in Chris Gabbard's life. He had a son. And in the course of his son being born, there was a problem and he was deprived of oxygen in his birth and he became a quadriplegic 
and has cerebral palsy. Gabbard describes going to the hospital to see his son. He said, after his birth, I was deeply ambivalent, having been persuaded by the arguments for infanticide. In other words, he's saying he had taught in his classroom that people like his son, people like his son had no right to life, and that they should be put out of their misery for their good and for the good of society. But he said this, I had been persuaded by these arguments, but then there was my son, asleep on a ventilator, motionless under a heat lamp, tubes and wires everywhere, monitors alongside his steel and transparent plastic crib. But what, was, what most stirred me was how much he resembled me. Nothing had prepared me for the shock of recognition. He was the boy in my own baby pictures, the image of me as an infant. He wasn't prepared for the fact that when he looked in that ventilated crib, he saw a child who was made in his image. Now his child had worth. And what this means is this is if that's true for him, how much more true for us who are called children of God. You see, you are made in the image of your father. You matter to your father, and that changes everything, doesn't it? And in fact, you matter so much to your father that when you were running from him, and in fact, when you were killing his other children, he valued you in that place. He saw your worth so much and defined your glory so profoundly that he said, I will send not the one who is the image of me, but the one who is the exact reflection of me to come and die to make you mine. This is why you matter. And this is why it doesn't matter. It does matter, but this is why even if you have been someone who has participated in any form, passively or actively in murder, why? You still have value and worth Because God declares it not just in creation, but he screams it at the cross. In order to to bring you back to him, for you to hear the voice of your worth and your value in God's ears, it cost him his son's life. Would you heed that voice? Would you heed the voice of one who says, you are worthy and you are priceless in my sight, and who says it about everybody else who is sitting around you this morning? We get to... Other implications of murder in the Sixth Commandment next week. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, this is not... um, We don't feel uplifted by this sermon in many ways. Lord, this is hard for us to swallow, but Lord, I pray that um, as we sang in the song earlier... I pray that, Lord, you would reveal to us the depths of our sin. Lord, would our sin be great? Would we see our sin for what it is? Our our individual sin and our corporate responsibilities. Would we see the heinous acts of murder that we have committed, that we have participated in, that we have cast a blind eye to? And yet, Lord, in the same moment in which you reveal to us the heinousness of our sin, would your grace, would your grace appear to us and be seen by us, and would you communicate to us as abundantly more? So may our sin be great, but your mercy be more. Oh, gracious God, may we run to the mercy of God who whispers to us our value and our worth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.